Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. I was acutely aware of disparities in the criminal legal system. And rather than just complain from my home, I decided I was going to run and change the system from the inside. That was DA Rachel Rollins. She's the DA of Suffolk County, Massachusetts, which includes the municipalities of Boston, Chelsea, Revere, and Winthrop. She's the first woman to hold the office of Suffolk County DA, and she's the first woman of color to be a Massachusetts DA. She's been described as a reformer and a progressive prosecutor. And I wanted to talk to her because I think that as we are having the conversation that we're having as a society about criminal justice reform and making the system more fair, we sometimes assume that doing those things is incompatible with the idea of public safety. Do you want to treat everyone equitably and give folks the same benefit of the doubt regardless of the color of their skin? Or do you want to be safe? I just think that's a false choice. I don't accept it. I wanted to talk to someone who's on the front lines about what they're doing to debunk the notion that we have to limit ourselves to that false choice. And so here I am. I started with D.A. Rollins. Take a listen. Welcome, D.A. Rollins. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Tell me what inspired you to run to be a district attorney. So the moment that we find ourselves in in this country right now, a a moment of reckoning and atonement with respect to racial disparities and certain communities' interactions with law enforcement is a surprise to some, but not to many. And although the names are new, um, this is the, unfortunately, hundredth, maybe even thousandth iteration of Uh, where we have found ourselves in the past. So I was acutely aware of disparities in the criminal legal system, that certain individuals had very different interactions with law enforcement than others did. And rather than just complain from my home, I said, I'm going to stop yelling at the television and I'm going to get up and do something myself. And I decided I was going to run and change the system from the inside. You once said in an interview that you believed we were 40 years behind where we need to be in the criminal justice system. What did you mean by that? You know, in the last 16 years, 10, 16 years, we have seen Uber completely demolish the taxi industry. We've seen Airbnb completely demolish the, uh, or make them step their game up, right? The hotel industry. The criminal legal system has not adapted to the times, right? I think the criminal legal system is uh, in the stone ages with respect to technology, data collection, and other things like that. But additionally, it is incredibly homogenous, right? In the sense of there is not a reflection of the community that most often comes in contact with the criminal legal system um, in a negative way are not the ones making the decisions in the system. How can you get people to better trust the system? Because I think we would both agree that it must be the case that folks who don't look like you still are required to treat you fairly. 
a hundred percent, right? And that's where I think cultural competence, that's why implicit and explicit bias training are all very, very important. And let's be very clear, right? There are individuals that might not look like me that have lived in the very communities or and been born and raised there themselves and might be more culturally competent about a section of Suffolk County than I may be um, based on what my background is. So we're not going to make those type of assumptions, but I, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Where we find ourselves right now is there are entire swaths and communities of people, irrespective of wealth, irrespective of education level, that don't trust law enforcement. Um, we've seen CEOs, not many of them because there aren't enough of us, but black CEOs um, of different companies across the country speaking out and saying, I've had negative encounters with law enforcement. Yes, I lived to tell that story, but I am a multimillionaire. Look at all of our professional athletes that are doing this right now. LeBron James and many other bold and courageous people. Like, let's remind everyone, this is why Colin Kaepernick took a knee quietly several years ago um, and nobody wanted to listen to him. And now here we are with two knees. Which one do you choose? There was an amazing article in the Washington Post, Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck or Colin Kaepernick's knee quietly asking our country to reckon with its past um, and its inception. So I work every day, Tanya, at trying to build trust between communities, and I mean poor communities of every color, and I mean black and brown communities as well specifically between them and law enforcement, because when that relationship is fractured, none of us are safer. Because remember, Tanya, I am also a potential grand juror a trial juror, I could have witnessed a crime. And if I don't trust the police based on some negative or racist or excessive or violent encounter I've had personally, or whether I've watched it and feel like I have vicarious trauma because I watched a lynching or a murder or a, you know, a hunting of somebody, that impacts the entire system. So why I decided you know, we have exceptional criminal defense lawyers that are fighting from the outside. We have community activists. We have a squad that is doing phenomenal work. Why I said I'm willing to run for office twice and win, take over an office that, by the way, voted overwhelmingly for the person I beat um, because they believed he was going to win, and then try to shift a culture from inside is so we can start building trust. I think that you make a really good point, and it's something I want to go back to because I have this conversation. Uh, I just had this conversation recently with Nick Turner, head of the Vera Institute of Justice. And one of the things that strikes me is that African Americans and uh, communities of color and poorer communities, and those all three are not the same thing, by the way. That's right. <laughs> often seem to be put to a false choice. And that false choice is, do you want your civil rights protected? Do you want to be treated with the same sense of freedom and liberty as everybody else? Or do you want to be safe? And I think that's just a false choice. You know, right now, we're in the middle of a big conversation about defunding the police. I'm old enough to remember, and not ashamed to admit it, 
I remember the public enemy song when people complained about the uh, police not coming to protect African-American victims. So how do you address this false choice that it seems that there's a a media narrative and a larger narrative that seems to want to kind of push folks into? Yeah, it's ridiculous, right? Our tax dollars, right, black and brown and poor people, we pay taxes that pay for our police department, that pay for the government. And that same government is harming us or not solving our homicides, not solving our violent crimes. And they push back and say, oh, well, you don't, you know, it's the no snitching policy. I love reminding people the greatest no snitching policy in the history of the world is the thin blue line, right? They wrote the book on not talking about bad behavior. If we can even see with the officers that surrounded Derek Chauvin as he squeezed the life out of George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds, did not shove him off or say, what are you doing? Or um, intervene. There's the bystander sort of requirements now that we have. So it is, we are all entitled to our civil rights and we are all entitled to be safe. And what I can tell you is that I try so hard to explain to law enforcement, you know, and I mean this incredibly respectfully, but one, you know, this sort of one bad apple, I saw something that was fantastic. If you have 10 bad police officers or bad apples and a thousand good police officers that know about those 10 and say nothing, you have a thousand and 10 bad police officers, right? What we have to do is root out the problem and start having oversight. And, you know, we can talk about the word defunding. It might not have been a word I chose. I think we need to reimagine. I think they don't need nearly as large the budget that they have. You know, Boston Police Department, $414 million budget, not including a $60 million overtime budget, four times the Boston Public Health Commission's entire budget. And what I don't want to do is have the mayor sort of play this game of, oh, well, we'll take 20% of the overtime budget and reallocate it right, right back to the police for some other unit within the police. This is like a shell game um, and people are tired. So what we see, Tanya, is the pendulum swinging all the way to the other side and people saying, well, now this is going to happen. And we're going to start from the beginning. And if we defund you, then all of your collective bargaining agreements are no longer enforceable. And we're going to start from the beginning and renegotiate from there. So I'm proud of the fact that there's a movement coming forward. We have to call out these false choices. We have to make it clear that we demand the same treatment as our counterparts. And the last thing I'll say is a lot of people, when they hear me talk and I say, you know, talk about wealth and race-based disparities all the time, they think I'm going to take their wonderful privileged life and drag them down to where poor people and black and brown people get treated in the criminal legal system. Well, when they say that, I say, well, first of all, then you're making my point, right? You recognize that there are two systems and you're winning and these people are losing. I'm pulling the floor up, right? I just want everyone treated this way with dignity and respect and the assumption of innocence until you're proven guilty. And honestly, we just had a Harvard Law School study that came out yesterday in Massachusetts proving everything I'm saying right now. There are enormous disparities with respect to Latinx and Black communities and the sentences they receive or whether or not they're incarcerated. 
there have been reports of an uptick in crime in a lot of major cities recently. Is it the time to talk about reducing police budgets when in some places this seems to be a moment of increased violence? So right now, when we look at the uptick in crime, we cannot talk about the uptick in crime without discussing COVID-19, which has exposed you know, in some instances, certainly exacerbated, but exposed tons of race and wealth-based disparities as well, right? So what we've all seen across the country, Tanya, is we now know essential workers aren't just police, fire, and EMS workers. They are the people who work in supermarkets, sanitation, hospital workers, caretakers, right? In transportation, the people who kept us alive when we were all sort of sheltering in place in our homes in the very beginning and not even leaving our houses for anything. Those same people don't get the privilege you and I have of zooming into our meetings. They have to physically show up at their job. They also have children, right? Many of them. And so they are homeschooling their children. And because they are poor or black or brown or immigrant, their children are more likely to be English language learners or have an IEP, which is what we call in Massachusetts, just requiring some additional assistance, period, for any number of reasons. And the gap that we are seeing educationally between the wealthy and the non-wealthy, the haves and the haves not, is widening, right? Add all of that, Tanya, to the pressure of the fact that we are contracting COVID-19 at higher rates and dying at higher rates across the country, right? There was one point, Tanya, where we saw maybe three or four months ago, there was a United States list of the top 10 hotspots in the U.S. with respect to COVID outbreaks. Eight of them, eight of the 10 were carceral facilities. The other two was like that naval ship where Trump ridiculed the captain that was trying to save everyone's life and he got the hero's welcome he deserved. And then another place was a meat packing factory, right? The the number two were in Ohio, carceral facilities. So we are incarcerated at higher rates. We are imprisoned at higher rates and get longer sentences. And we are dying inside, behind the wall and out in the community as well. I say all that to say this, These are stressors that one of them might be enough for an explosion, but we've seen an uptick in crime because unemployment is incredibly high, people aren't working, bills aren't stopping, evictions, foreclosures, all of these things are happening. That is why I believe we're seeing an uptick in crime. And to your point, what is happening is there are people now that might not even be calling the police because they just want the noise to stop or something to end, but not the person to lose their life potentially. So it gets right back to what I was saying. We need better communication and trust between law enforcement in these communities. And what what needs to happen is law enforcement needs to recognize that very quickly. And I, Tanya, am part of law enforcement now. I work very hard at making sure all of my commissioners colonels and chiefs of police. We have mandatory meetings that I'm running about race, policing in the black community, you know, where we find ourselves post George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And of course, now we have new names, even since this reckoning that started, right? Elijah McClain and others, right? Jacob, other, other people. 
So again, I, I, we have a lot of work to do. I do think though, we still need to have these tough conversations. So help me and my listeners understand at least your vision for what a reimagined police force might look like. For instance, you have you indicated uh, right when you took office that there were some crimes that you didn't think people should be incarcerated for. Shoplifting is one of those crimes. Certainly a nonviolent offense. But you'd agree with me. You don't want somebody taking your stuff. I don't want somebody taking my stuff. I don't want people taking my stuff with impunity. I don't want them taking other people's stuff. What do you say to those folks who say, you know what, maybe he didn't hit me, maybe he didn't kill me, but he took something from me that I worked really hard for, and I'm not okay with him not getting some kind of significant penalty for it. What do you say to those folks? First of all, I say thank you for telling me that, and I listen to what their story is. I show up every time that these a lot of the the store owner affiliations will call me in to say you've you've allowed there to be essentially a free for all, right? You have a list of 15 crimes and I just I let them say it and then I correct and say that in the first instance the presumption is changing. The presumption from jail is now going to be potentially diversion, but we have buckets of things, right? So Tanya, you have never shoplifted before in your life. You are caught. It's an article that's $70. It is not damaged. It gets returned back to the storefront because the majority of shoplifters, unfortunately, Tanya, are horrible at their craft and are caught before they, you know, as they cross the threshold out, they are stopped by either security or someone or the police are called, et cetera. For me, if we get the item back, if we get a stay away from you and you don't come back, if we get the bad behavior to stop, I would rather have that happen, that the victim get their property back and you not be branded with a criminal record and not come back if you've never done this before. If you're me, and this is the fifth time you've done this in the year, that is not going to be a case potentially that we automatically divert or null pros or don't move forward on because those are two different fact patterns, right? But what I push back at and say when the police or the judges kind of talk to me about my discretion is, Tanya, police use discretion every day. The police might, you know, take you out of the store, get the thing back, have you sit in their police car for two hours, bring you down to the station and then let you out and not charge you with the crime. That's their discretion to not do that. They've inconvenienced you a little maybe, but they have not processed you through the system. Or if you are arrested and I prosecute you and a judge says, you know, afterwards, um, when I ask for bail, let's say hypothetically or something else, and they say, are you serious for this? No, personal recognizance, get out of here. And Commonwealth, why are you bringing me these type of cases? Maybe they can't dismiss it, but they can admonish us and then we decide to not move forward. Those two parties get to do what they want without telling us how they're gonna act. There's no transparency or list about these are the things I'm gonna do. What I push back at and say is, as a candidate, I told you these type of crimes, nonviolent, non-serious, we're gonna think differently about it. And a great example, Tanya, was we have a woman, significant mental health issues, who engaged in a violent crime that was not on my list, and we got her an evaluation and she is now held at a facility where she needs to be 
getting a, uh, a mental evaluation with respect to some of the issues she has. And that is a win for both people. She's no longer in the community harming anyone and she's getting the, the, the treatment she needs. So if that victim said to me, no, I want her in jail instead of at a facility that's gonna work on her mental health issues and trauma, I will have that argument back and forth any day. But I do agree with you. Like there, this is not a free for all. You get to shoplift all you want. It's a first time shoplifting. And the way the statute's written, just so you know, you can't get jail time for shoplifting until your third offense in Massachusetts, right? And it is it is a specific sort of requirement. I'm not talking about me breaking glass and going into Uggs and taking 15 pairs of you know, $400 Ugg boots, that's not shoplifting, right? That's a breaking and entering in the nighttime and, you know, a significant felony charge. I'm talking about me stealing hot tamales or diapers or something out of a target. That's different than what I'm talking about. But what I would do is I would listen. And if there were victims um, of this crime, then we have obligations in Massachusetts to let them know what we are going to do so that they can be heard before we make our decision. Law enforcement officials always have had this discretion. Even your predecessor uh, exercised this type of discretion, did he not? So what you're doing isn't some new and novel thing necessarily. I think one of the issues is who gets the benefit of prosecutorial and law enforcement discretion, wouldn't you say? A hundred percent. I think the difference is, is I'm saying it out loud. It was happening quietly. Um, in these cases that I listed, this top 15, in about 60% of the instances prior to me becoming DA, the previous DA had been doing virtually the same thing. He just wasn't saying it out loud. I am, number one. Number two, I am also, you know, when prosecutorial discretion is used to overcharge and to ask for longer sentences, nobody bats an eye. But when I say, let's talk about mass incarceration, let's look at data and see who are we charging with more serious crimes, same fact pattern. Why is it that, you know, a black and a white defendant charged with the same thing see a difference for, for low level crimes of 30 to 45 day difference between the sentences they receive for the exact same thing, same criminal histories, that type of stuff. What what is the explanation there? When I start talking that way, people get very nervous because they're not used to a prosecutor speaking that way. And I like to tell people, none of you cared when we were on a freight train going a thousand miles an hour toward mass incarceration about prosecutorial discretion. But now that I'm pulling that break up and, you know, Tokyo drifting myself into a circle away from that, you are saying, whoa, 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 who does she think she is? She doesn't have the ability to do that. And Tanya, what we've seen is lots of people challenging me about it and us saying, no, we're right, bringing it up to our Supreme Judicial Court in the Commonwealth and winning and making them know that we don't back down from doing what's right, no matter who tells us we, you know, they don't like what we're doing or who challenges us. We think long and hard before we act and then we act with conviction. Before you took office, a police group filed a bar complaint against you. And the bar complaint was based on your position that there were certain crimes uh, for which you didn't think people should be incarcerated. How did that turn out? 
you all are all on the same team, but they seem to come out swinging against you yeah. before you even started the job. That's a great question. So exactly. I hadn't even been sworn in and they filed a complaint um, at the board of bar overseers asking for my um, bar license as you know, your listeners know we're licensed, by the way, police are not licensed and I have, I don't have the right to kill you um, legally or lethally. Uh, I don't have a weapon that I get to bring to work, et cetera. But Federal Association of Police filed this complaint. Um, what's great is there were several people that jumped up and said, we want to represent you pro bono. The complaint was summarily dismissed, but it really gave me the flavor of what I was going to be dealing with from the moment I set foot in office. And we've been challenged every step of the way. And that's fine, right? We, When you know what you're doing is right and just and fair and equitable and decent, when, you know, I love to say, judge me by my enemies, right? If we listed, if we had photos of all of the people that were so worried and outraged by what I did, it basically looks like a group of 60 plus year old gray haired, you know, older white men that believe they understand my community better than I do, or they understand, you know, what people of color or poor people need um, because they've interacted with them so often. And I push back and say, the only time you ever see us is in a victim, defendant, or criminal circumstance. None of, very few of them have other sort of social interactions, personal interactions with our communities. And so, you know, it just set the tone pretty well. I made sure, Tanya, to invite all of my chiefs, colonels, and commissioners to my swearing in. I addressed them personally and said, I know you're scared or nervous, but that's a good thing because change only happens when we're uncomfortable. We're going to work together hard because remember, 90% of the time we are aligned when we are moving forward with the prosecution, right? So we work together often, but we aren't friends because when the police harm or abuse their power. It's me that looks over the allegations and decides whether we're going to prosecute the police or not. So there has to be some tension there, but we have a respect and I, um, I speak with them often and I do respect them, but they understand that I don't report to them. They don't necessarily report to me either. I have the ability to, you know, investigate and prosecute them. So it's tense, but professional. While we cannot afford bad apples with guns who have the right to kill people and deprive people of life and liberty, we also have to give due consideration to all those other apples who are operating under enormous pressures. I mean, I think that you'd agree with me that going out as a law enforcement officer today in an environment where people are armed, where people are making weapons at home, where people um, really have the ability to inflict mass damage that's on par with what our law enforcement, you know, they, they've got weapons that are as good as or better than some police officers do. You're talking about 3D printers that are creating ghost guns. And yeah, it is dangerous out there. I speak as often as possible about how hard this job is, how Every morning when they wake up and leave, their family and loved ones don't know whether they're going to come home at the end of that evening. And as well that, you know, when we are scared and, and fearful, 
we dial 911 and they come and help, hopefully, right? I push back and say, though, I do think there needs to be, you know, empathy toward law enforcement, but I also think there should be empathy towards communities that feel as though law enforcement is not supportive of them, right? And it's different in the sense, Tanya, of, you know, our tax dollars pay your salary, right? So if I'm trying to think of the right way to explain, you know, people would be outraged if the RMV was behaving like the police department was, right? If the RMV... What's the RMV? Oh, I'm sorry. The Registry of Motor Vehicles. Ah. Ours is ridiculous here, right? You show up, you wait in a line for two hours, you get to the front, the person's either on their phone or goes on break and says, you're supposed to be in that line, which is three times longer, whatever. People can complain. What I've often said is when you have a monopoly on something, it's very hard to incentivize change. And so I think... We do need empathy, but this is a moment where only one of these groups is the government and it's not the community, right? It's law enforcement. So we don't get to have a bad day. We signed up for this. Believe me, if, if I played for you the messages, Tanya, that I get from people who are unhappy with me, I don't mind criticism, but I get messages telling me to go back to Africa, calling me the N-word and a monkey, you know, all these things that we save them just to make sure we find out who that person is, hopefully. But I still wake up and I do my job the next day and I make sure that I do, right? And it is different because I'm not, you know, hopefully going to be harmed in in my job. I'm not getting the call to say, Rachel, we need you to respond to this uh, location. But I will say there are lots of people in the community that do respect the police quite a bit. And the problem is, is that there are some, though, that have had very different interactions. So I think what it proves is we need to start having more conversations and real ones. Like, I don't mean let's form a commission. I mean, we need to sit down and start working out the problems we have, because where we find ourselves, if we don't do that, things are going to get even worse. What you said is so important to emphasize. You are the government the government does not get to have a bad day. That's right. I would dare say, D.A. Rollins, that if after you receive one of those racist emails, somebody calling you the N-word, you don't then get to go get up and go to work and say, I am going to make sure that I prosecute everybody who has used this word because I am feeling so angry. Like, you don't have no. that luxury. You are yeah. the government. Or, or to every white individual that I encounter, believe that they were the one that left that message, right? I think there's this, I think there's this, these issues that I keep seeing with respect to why I want my, my office, why I want the police to have more positive encounters with the communities that they are duty bound to protect and serve is if all you ever see somebody doing is negative things and it's the same type of person you believe doing that, your implicit bias and explicit bias starts kicking in. And I will say, I think, you know, that is not right in the least instance, but why we need more inclusive police departments, right? People that speak the languages of the communities that they are serving, people who live or have lived in those communities, and recognizing that de-escalation is such an important tactic and um, tool, as well as understanding that you know, Tanya, like something like 50% of the officer involved shootings 
that happened in Suffolk County prior to me taking office were a mental health crisis. The person was having a mental health crisis. Now, in some circumstances, they got a knife later or did something. But what we need is to make sure that we are training our officers to recognize cognitive impairments. There are individuals we've, we've read about across the country that if I'm deaf and you're, you're telling me to do something and I'm not responding, are you kidding me? Like, how are we dealing with disabilities, impairments, mental health issues that we should be sort of embracing the community and saying, how can we be more helpful as opposed to penalizing people for having a disability? So what's the mechanism now under your administration for dealing with that potentially dangerous person who's having a mental episode? Because remember, we're in COVID-19. And as you pointed out at the outset, all, there were already horrible pressures on the criminal defense system. It was all on the criminal justice system. It was already backlogged, understaffed, working under tremendous pressures. Now with covid these pressures are, have been even exacerbated. We've got governments with less tax revenue, people with less money, crime is going up. Is there a, a mechanism for dealing with these folks now? Where's the money coming from? I'll talk about it from the prosecutor's side, but remember it all starts kind of with the police getting the call or witnessing something and interacting with the individual. But what's great is we have several, we call them Tanya specialty courts, in our lower, um, their municipal and district courts, not our superior court where our more violent and serious crimes are usually indicted up to superior court. But in our municipal and district courts, we have specialty courts like mental health court, drug court, veterans court, you know, any, any number of them. We have judges that have taken an interest in this particular um, population or group of individuals and are very well versed in some of the struggles that they often see or you know situations individuals may find themselves in so we have a system with the court system but i personally think tanya if we're going to get it right i don't even want i don't want them getting their treatment in court right i want them getting the services and treatment they need before they come into contact with the criminal legal system right so what we see tanya is Tons of systemic failures, right? You know, we don't have a strong enough either Department of Mental Health, right? Or this individual might have been put into our Department of Children and Families, then the Department of Youth Services, where they serve some time due to no fault of their own. We don't get to choose who our parents are, where we live, bad school system uh, or failing school system, parents that have um, issues or might be incarcerated or not available. All of these things create the individual that we find in front of us. And usually where they get their treatment is when they hit the last, last catch basin and it's us saying, okay, we're going to send you to South Bay, which is a jail, and we're going to get you trauma. You know, We're going to get you counseling. We're going to get you the medication you need. We're going to get you the other stuff. I want that flipped, right? I want that so that the services and treatment you need, you get before you touch the criminal legal system. And then hopefully if you have the treatment you need, you don't even touch our system unless and until you want to work there, right? As a counselor or as a victim witness advocate or something else, not as inmate number A3925, 
right? And so remember, Tanya, $55,000 a year we spend to send somebody to South Bay in Boston. I want that money going to, you know, and by the way, when you get to South Bay, there's a one guard for every two to three prisoner ratio. But if you go to public school in Boston, it's 31 students for every teacher, right? So we, we just have a lot of work we need to do as a system. We need to, when I say defund, when people say defund the police or reallocate or reimagine those police departments, do they need $414 million? Could they do it with $300 million? Could we take $100 million and put it into the failing schools in the very neighborhoods where the non-fatal shootings are up and the homicides are up? Can we get counselors in those schools, social workers in those schools, nurses in those schools? Can we get people to help these individuals when they are crying and desperate for it prior to letting them fail? doing very little, and then bringing the hammer down when they make a mistake after we, we as a society have failed them in any number of ways. Is there the political momentum and will in your jurisdiction to flip things in that way so that people's first engagement, you know, often people who are mentally ill, their first engagement for any help or the first opportunity to get any help is once they've somehow found themselves in the criminal justice system. We have to take better care of, of each other, right? Because ultimately, when you complain about an increase in crime in your neighborhoods or shoplifting, but you don't care about somebody with a mental health issue or substance use disorder, I don't wanna hear about you talking to me about Snickers, right? No, that doesn't mean that Rachel gets to go in and take Snickers out of your store, but we need to think a little bit more holistically about why is this problem happening? We have to care more. We just have to care more. Or when you say, why is crime going up? As you have your blinders on and drive past, you know, these are for the people from Boston, Mass Ave and Melnia Cass, and we see hundreds of people that are literally hurting, right? They are either coming out of a program, um, they are deep in addiction. There are people preying on them. We see an uptick in sexual assaults on this community. We are dehumanizing them, right? We drive past them every day and aren't advocating for them to get the shelter or the treatment or the housing or the services that they deserve, right? And if we are truly going to say that this is the, men the, the health crisis that it has always been, and I can't say this without saying, and it was a health crisis when it was black people in the 80s and 90s, and it was crack cocaine and heroin. We just didn't look like you, Senator, or, or you know, Congressman or Governor. But now that it's your niece or nephew or some kid you went to Exeter with or Harvard or Yale or Princeton, you know, who you can't believe this has trickled into Greenwich or Block Island or Nantucket or wherever you're spending your time now, you need to really make sure we aren't penalizing substance use disorder. And we do it every single day, right? I am a survivor of breast cancer. No one yelled at me or called me a loser or blamed me for my breast cancer. They said, how can we help you? Let's keep you alive, right? 
We do that all the time with people struggling with substance use. And it's hard. Some of us don't understand it as well as we need to. But I am telling you, Tanya, most of this list of 15, it's a mental health issue. It's a substance use disorder. It's a food or housing insecurity. It is straight up homelessness. Or it is just a failure of a system where we are penalizing the wrong person or the wrong, the culprit, the villain is not the individual in front of us. It's the system. Well, and it's also about the view that people choose to take of a particular offender. So as you point out, when we were looking at African-American women who were addicted to crack cocaine and may have been pregnant, we wanted to incarcerate them. We wanted to take away their children. They were uh, the worst and the most evil degenerates alive. When, when, as you point out, victims of drug abuse start to look more like senators and presidents, uh, except for Obama, and congresspeople, then all of a sudden we treat it as a mental health crisis. So this brings me back to something that a type of uh, leadership training you said you were doing in your office where you try to get the folks who are working in your jurisdiction to do training about institutional racism and to be more culturally competent. Has there been backlash to that? Because as we've seen in the broader national conversation, um, President Trump has come out very stridently against the 1619 against project. 1619 yeah. project or you know, references or instruction that's related to discussing uh, institutional racism and biases. How have your non-Black colleagues reacted to the type of training that you're doing? Yeah, it's funny. Attorney General Barr said something. My daughter and I talked about it a couple months ago. History is written by the winners. I, he was quoted literally as saying that. And right. And so they get to rewrite history. And whenever there are people that confront me and there are, you know, sometimes on our staff, but usually in public about like, Jesus, all you talk about is race and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, your rage is, is directed at the wrong person. What I will tell you is that Yes, we have done some cultural competency training, and I myself have tried to do much of that. On June 1st, I confronted or addressed my staff. I wrote a four-page letter about George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, where we find ourselves, explaining to them what we were going to do. And then we had breakout circles and sort of restorative justice circles to talk about that. We got some really good feedback. And honestly, Tanya, I, I think the people that think this is malarkey, they aren't going to say that out loud. I just, right prior to coming on this podcast, was given a briefing on our upcoming assistant district attorney training. One of the things that I mandate, Tanya, and did up to two years ago when I started, every one of my new ADAs has to visit the jail that if we ask for you to be held dangerous or held or detained for any reason, the jail you go to, it's called Nashua Street. If we have the power to send you somewhere and have never had the decency ourselves to set foot in that place, I think that is the definition of hypocrisy. And I am also fully aware that when you go to a, a tour of Nashua Street, it is not nearly the same as when you are arrested and spend days or weeks or months in Nashua Street. But at the very least, our new assistant district attorneys will have to go to Nashua Street and receive a tour to see what the facilities are like, what the process is, and what you know where it's located, what happens there. We also mandate that they have 
receive training from judges, from criminal defense attorneys, from survivors of violence. And I mean all types of violence, sexual violence, survivors of homicide, so victims themselves or survivors or the family of uh, homicide victims as well, um, or violent crimes. We make sure that they meet with people who are returning citizens, individuals that have a criminal history. And I don't mean, God, remember that amazing weekend, Tanya, where we had to spend two hours like locked up after we went to Ibiza? No, not that <laughs> type. I mean, you know, 10 years, multiple encounters with law enforcement who are now returned citizens into our communities, law-abiding, tax-paying, hard-working. We want to show that you are not defined by whatever that moment is that you may have come in contact with us. And then most importantly, we've done really interesting things like we have a youth council now, right? So we make decisions, Tanya, all the time that impact young people um, and don't have their voice at the table at all, right? Right now in Massachusetts, it used to be you could be arrested at seven, Seven years old, you could be arrested. But now in Massachusetts in 2018, we raised that age to 12. Now you can't enter our system. And we thought we were great. And of course, because I'm me, I said, in Europe, it's 14, right? So don't stop patting yourself on the back. We're two years below Europe, who you don't even enter the system until you're 14, period. But 12 years old, we can charge you with a crime, right? And depending on certain crimes, as a youthful offender, we can hold you accountable in superior court as if you were an adult. We don't have a lot of young people or many DAs don't have a lot of young people talking to them, right, about what they're proposing for their juvenile unit or for other things. And we want A students and honor roll kids. And we also want kids that unfortunately might be in DYS due to no fault of their own. Both of my nieces are in DCF custody. You know, if your parents have mental health issues or are, are in crisis, you might be in the system as well. So we are involving people. Everyone that touches the system gets to train our new lawyers because they all matter, right? They all matter in the system, not just police, not just judges, not just prosecutors. We sure do matter too, but so do criminal defense attorneys, defendants, witnesses, victims, the community, um, people that have touched the system everywhere. We have probation officers, social workers. We do it all. We want a full wraparound training for our ADAs. What is your advice to young people? Because that's actually the note on which I'd like to leave. I, I, I think that we are now in an environment where young kids who look like us, and frankly, even some of the ones who don't, are growing up with a sense that uh, the criminal justice system is entirely antagonistic to them, not to be trusted. They should not return calls if they are a witness to a crime. Law enforcement is not a job they'd want to have. Why would they want to be a prosecutor when the system is rigged? What do you say to those young people? I say to them, your voice matters. Please stay alert and involved and don't wait as long as I did. I ran for office at 47 years old. You know, it's the perfect time for me, but I don't want anyone thinking you have to wait to do what you believe is the right thing to change whatever the system is for you. It might be the criminal legal system. It might be climate change. It might be 
the educational system or any other issues that you are focused on, I just encourage you to be as bold as you can possibly be regarding what you are demanding and educate yourself and then hold your elected officials accountable with respect to what we say we're going to do, right? And if we haven't said it yet, demand that we do it, right? So I think they are incredibly powerful even before they are 18, right? That's part of why I said seven to 12, we jumped that age to enter the criminal legal system. We need people that are users of our system in a positive or a negative way, telling us how that system works. Because we know this, Tanya, from where I sit, looking down, everyone that reports up to me says, we're doing great, right? That's why I always want to have my finger on the pulse of what's happening in the community, in the criminal defense bar. I speak to people that are presently incarcerated, whether it is at a South Bay or Nashua Street, meaning pre-trial, or individuals that are serving life sentences. I want input from every single way and possibility, but to young people, get involved. You matter, hold us accountable. And then if you're interested in running for office, do it or change the system. Don't think you have to wait, demand the change. DA Rollins, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. Uh, Thank you for your time and good luck to you. Stay safe. Thank you, my dear. Be well. You as well. Thank you. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 